Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 31. It's treason, then. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Samuel 1, 15-23, from the King James Bible. The enemy relies much upon this art and skill in the intoxication of princes and great men with a cup of fornication, thereby holding them up in their engagements against Israel. This was the magic sleight of Egypt, to blow up and keep alive the flame of Pharaoh's indignation, though he in himself had many inclinations to let Israel go. These wily sorcerers held Pharaoh captive, and by his means, Israel. There is yet one sin more they much lean upon, magic and witchcraft. Balaam must be hired to curse Israel, and if witches and wizards have any power in their black art, now is the time for them to drive a full trade. A sermon from Edmund Staunton, Puritan preacher, in 1644. A witch is a rebel in physics, and a rebel is a witch in politics. For one acts against nature, the other against order, and both are in league with the devil as the first father of discord and sorcery. Thomas Vaughan writing in 1650. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last time we had a short episode covering the life and death of Dr. John Lamb, a convicted fraudster and sorcerer, who nevertheless was a close confidant of George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, and one of Charles I's closest allies. Buckingham was hardly the people's duke, having been blamed for military failures, and he was suspected of having an unnatural hold over the king. The murder of Buckingham by a subversive army officer just weeks after the lynching of Lamb is only the first violent reaction to the reign of King Charles. This week, we will start a series of episodes on the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, when England, Scotland, and Ireland descended into anarchy. So thinking back a few episodes, we heard about James VI and I's repeated disputes with Parliament over the extent of royal authority. James wanted money, in amounts that couldn't be generated from his personal income, and he wanted to harness the full financial might of his southern kingdom. For centuries, English monarchs had been unable to do so without the approval of Parliament, although this approval was very rarely withheld. Gradually, however, over the years, Parliament had gotten a bit uppity. They'd started delaying their approval until the monarch had addressed their concerns. This all came to a head once James took the throne in England. James 
was a king's king, an absolutist in every way, and unwilling to accept any infringement upon his royal prerogative. And he immediately came to words with his new parliament. As we heard, Parliament began criticising the immediate courtiers of James, and through them criticised James himself. Now, James was having none of this, and tried as well as he could to rule without calling a Parliament, going from 1610 to 1614 before calling one, and only managing to stand it for just two months before again dissolving it, and ruling alone for another seven years. So, when James died in 1625, and Charles acceded to the throne, he inherited his father's difficult relationship with Parliament. He had managed the French princess, Henrietta Maria, the sister of King Louis VIII, and a Catholic, which irked the staunchly Protestant Parliament, who were concerned that Charles would now be tempted to relax restrictions on English Catholics. Charles denied this, of course, promising at his first opening of Parliament that as king he would never do something like that. Of course, he had secretly promised to do something like that as a term of the marriage, and would also loan his brother-in-law a fleet of English ships to help suppress an uprising of Protestant Huguenots. Yeah, so not a good look. On the bright side, Parliament was still very interested in war with Spain, and voted to grant the new king a subsidy of £140,000 in order to wage this war. So that's water under the bridge then, king and parliament are aligned, and dancing hand in hand to war. Hardly. Charles wanted to send an army to fight on the continent, whereas parliament wanted to raid the Spanish treasure fleets returning from the New World. One was very expensive with little in the way of material benefits, while the other was relatively cheap and had the potential for huge gains. The £140,000 was nowhere near the amount the king would need for a viable military expedition to Europe, and both Charles and Parliament knew it. A naval expedition did indeed attempt to attack the Spanish city of Cadiz, but it ended in failure when the English soldiers got drunk. Now, there's probably a joke in there somewhere about English tourists, but I digress. This military misadventure was then followed up by a failed attack on a treasure fleet, which simply avoided the English altogether. There were other spats between the new king and his parliament. Tonnage and poundage, a customs duty that had traditionally been granted to every new monarch for the duration of their reign, was only granted to Charles for a single year, to be renewed annually like a magazine subscription. Charles was not pleased, and after his year was over, he carried on collecting it anyway. When an anti-Calvinist, anti-Puritan preacher came under scrutiny from Parliament, Charles made him part of his household to protect him, fanning the suspicion among the House that Charles was seeking to revert the kingdom to Catholicism. That the preacher, Richard Montague, was vocally anti-Catholic and seems to have aligned with the moderates within the Church of England was irrelevant. Further hampering relations between King and Parliament was the political fallout of the Cardi's expedition. Buckingham was Lord High Admiral, and questions were being raised about the organisation of the expedition and Buckingham's choice of commander. After he was further promoted to Chancellor of some 
minor boarding school called Cambridge University, two parliamentary opponents were arrested for attempting to block his appointment, only being released after a week in prison. When the heat began to rise, and Parliament made to officially impeach the Duke for incompetence and corruption, Charles dissolved Parliament. What followed was a back and forth between Charles attempting to raise funds without Parliament, and his subjects reminding the King that they had rights, you know. Charles used forced loans to essentially take money from his subjects. If they didn't pay him this completely voluntary loan, they went to prison. Parliament brought a petition to remind the king that he was violating several written and unwritten contracts between a monarch and his people, which the king acknowledged, only to simply ignore them once the delegation left the room, and continued to claim income that he, in Parliament's collective mind at least, had no right to. It was around this time that Buckingham was assassinated, stabbed to death by an officer, disgusted by the Duke's military adventures, which had not only caused unnecessary English deaths, but hadn't even succeeded. While Charles spent two days crying his eyes out at the loss of his favourite, Parliament, and the public more generally, celebrated, which I'm sure didn't help their relationship. Charles reconvened Parliament in early 1629, only to call for its adjournment when questions began to be asked about his illegal collection of customs duties. A number of leading MPs were arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London, and Charles began his 11-year reign without a Parliament. I'm not going to get into all the varied ways that Charles tried to raise funds without calling a Parliament, but my personal favourite is when he resurrected an ancient law which was still on the books but hadn't been used for over a century, which deemed that every man earning a certain amount of money was technically a knight, and ordered them to attend the king's coronation to be knighted. Well, conveniently enough, the king's coronation was a few years past, and so according to this law, these men were meant to have attended, and they didn't. It didn't matter that no one had known or expected them to attend, they had broken the law, and so Charles gave them fines. Charles then managed to rule without having to call a parliament until 1640. During the intervening years, he had appointed William Lord as Archbishop of Canterbury, which caused a small religious ruckus in Scotland that happened to be called the First Bishop's War. He reformed elements of the Church of England, vigorously prosecuted opponents in Star Chamber, before finally giving in to financial pressures. Yet when he called a parliament, hoping that they might be grateful for his benevolence, only the Irish parliament was remotely helpful. The English MPs instead called for a reform, Charles ignored them, and the assembly dissolved a month into its term, being known as the Short Parliament. The Scottish parliament managed to be even less helpful than the English one. They took one look south of the border, and sent in the army. Much better equipped and experienced than any available English force, the Scots were subsequently victorious at the Battle of Newburn. After this defeat, at the hands of his own subjects no less, Charles called a Magnum Concilium, a great council, which was somewhat like a parliament but only for the nobility and clergy, so none of the riffraff could interfere. Here, Charles asked what to do, and he was told, 
Just call a parliament. Listen to their grievances. Now, surprisingly enough, Charles actually did so. When this long parliament convened, the vast majority were opponents of either the king, his councillors, his reforms, or all three, and almost immediately they began proceedings to impeach both Archbishop Lord and the Earl of Strafford, Charles's two closest allies, as well as a number of other royal officials for high treason. Parliament also passed a law that required the king to summon a parliament regularly, which Charles begrudgingly accepted. Charles had promised Stafford that he would protect him from Parliament, who quite literally wanted his head. Yet, the king would prove powerless in the face of the significant public opposition to Stafford, and Charles assented to the act of attainder against Stafford, who was then beheaded. By the end of 1641, Charles's position had rapidly deteriorated. Ireland was in the midst of a rebellion after an attempted coup d'etat failed, while a kidnapping plot led by supporters of Charles to seize the leading members of the Covenant, known ominously as the Incident, had also failed. Such was Charles's standing that there were even rumours that the Queen herself, Henrietta Maria, the Princess of France, was due to be impeached for being in cahoots with the Irish. This would be intolerable. Charles acted, but this too was just as unsuccessful as previous events. By the 3rd of January 1642, Charles ordered the arrests of five leading MPs. When Parliament refused to hand the men over, he personally led his royal retinue into the House of Commons to seize the men. This was scandalous! Not only was this the first time a reigning English monarch had entered the House of Commons at all, but he did so intending to use force against sitting members of Parliament. This was a serious break with tradition. To make matters worse, the men he was looking for got away, aided in their escape by allies within Parliament, and Charles now had to retreat from the house in failure. He carried on retreating all the way to Windsor Castle, as Parliament seized London to, in their view, protect themselves from a tyrannical king. Both sides began to build up their forces throughout 1642, skirmishing occasionally, but with neither King nor Parliament wishing to go too far. This all changed in October, at the Battle of Edge Hill. This was a pitched battle, yet it only amounted to a stalemate, with both Royalist and Parliamentary forces withdrawing as daylight faded. What had begun so many years ago as a political disagreement between King and Parliament had now escalated into full-blown civil war. As the opposing armies of King and Parliament withdrew as dusk fell on that October evening, they may have realised that a Rubicon had been crossed, but none could have known that they were on a path that would separate Charles from his head and leave England a ravaged war zone. Now, over the next few episodes, I'm not going to attempt to cover the details of the conflict, how the fighting spread to the other two kingdoms in the British Isles, and how it was finally resolved. I've only summarised the outbreak of the war for two reasons. Firstly, because if I didn't, then the next few episodes wouldn't make much sense. The breakdown in law and order, a breakdown that was inevitable during a bloody conflict between a monarch and his subjects, was a central, if not 
dominating element to the spike in witch accusations in England that occurred during this period. The second reason is because, according to some arguments I've read, one of the clearest examples of the growing divide between the royal court and the gentry that made up Parliament were witch trials, or rather, the king's attitude towards them. As we've seen over the last several episodes, neither James nor Charles were particularly zealous in their prosecution of witches, at least in England. There are notable exceptions, where a large number of witches are executed, but they are exceptions for a reason. By and large, when the Stuart Court became involved in witch prosecutions, they played a moderating influence on proceedings. This was, however, not necessarily in line with popular opinion. While certainly, elements of the Church of England and the gentry were in agreement as to the response to witchcraft, it was by no means unanimous. As we saw with Edward Fairfax, the close relative of the future parliamentarian general, judicial restraint could be highly vexing to those who were convinced of the danger posed by witches. Mr Fairfax's reaction was not abnormal. As Dr Peter Elmer notes in his 2016 work, Witchcraft, Witch Hunting and Politics in Early Modern England, quote, It should not be assumed, however, that a lack of judicial engagement with witchcraft was indicative of a wider disinterest or even a scepticism with regards to the subject, end quote. A number of notable parliamentarians and opponents of the king had previous, first-hand experience with the trials. Let's take a trip down memory lane. In episode 29, we discussed the 1934 Pendle trials, headed by Justices of the Peace Richard Shuttleworth and John Starkey. Now, we've met Mr Starkey before, a long time ago. Does the name John Darrell ring any bells? John Darrell was the Puritan exorcist who practiced and was discredited in the late 1590s. He had been suppressed by the Anglican authorities for being too extreme. Well, one of his clients was the young John Starkey, who he exorcised in 1599, now all grown up and a true disciple of his childhood saviour. Starkey, despite the 1634 trial's collapse after royal interference, would continue to promote witch-hunting in his jurisdiction, and would be a firm supporter of the parliamentarian cause during the Civil War. Elmer makes a convincing argument in his book that the spike in witch-trials during the Civil War did not appear out of the ether, caused solely by either the breakdown in central authority or the personal ambitions of witch-hunters. Not only was the lackadaisical attitude of Charles's government to witchcraft not representative of the opinions of a substantial minority, a minority within which you could place the collective but ill-defined Puritans, but the official response was actually counterproductive. For those that considered witchcraft to be a clear and present danger to the body politic, the royal court's active suppression of the treatment was worrying. Elmer highlights the growing concern of Puritans to reforms instigated by Charles and Archbishop Lord. These reforms, quote, constituted a conspiratorial attempt to impose Roman Catholicism on an unsuspecting people, end quote. The conflict both before and after the outbreak of hostilities on the battlefield was not solely political in nature. It was a battle of good and evil on a cosmic level. At least, to the Puritans. To quote Elmer, 
Under such circumstances, it was natural for those who perceived their communities as besieged by the forces of evil to be more sensitive and thus receptive to claims of witchcraft. Just as it made more sense for those like Charles I and his supporters, who rejected the idea of the church and state as fundamentally disordered, to deprecate such claims. The explanation for Charles's reluctance to prosecute witches during his reign could simply be down to his scepticism and the scepticism of those around him. Elmer proposes that Charles was not sceptical of the crime nor the existence of witchcraft, but rather of its extent within his kingdom. Absolutist monarchs such as Charles and James openly touted their rule as being based on the divine right of kings, God's vice-regent on earth, a demigod more or less whose authority was absolute. While quite the pitch, it did mean that suggesting that such a godly being's realm was infested with the servants of the devil would be equivalent to questioning the legitimacy of the Stuart dynasty. Now, this isn't to say that Charles believed that there was a problem and that he was terrified of looking weak by attempting to deal with it. Instead, as Elmer argues, Charles believed his own press. His kingdoms were calm, peaceful, and orderly, as he expected them to be. He had, after all, the ascent of the Almighty. We can see this confidence in other elements of Charles's reign. Aside from his obvious unwillingness to call a parliament, desperately believing he could rule without them, the traditional kingly duty of curing scrofula also fell out of practice during Charles's time on the throne. This was the belief that the king's touch had divine healing properties. This went back centuries, where cases are reported that scrofula, a skin disease also known as the king's evil, was completely cured from contact with the monarch. This was touching for the king's evil. Yet Charles rarely conducted this traditional duty. The late Professor Kevin Sharp suggested that Charles was reluctant to do so because it implied an instability or disorder within his realm. When this instability and disorder began to make itself readily apparent in the 1640s, oddly enough, Charles resumed the practice. Much like with the lack of witch trials, he may have genuinely considered it unnecessary to continue this tradition in such a perfect, unblemished realm. But the optics were bad, and there was clearly a market for such medicinal acts. Several individuals were prosecuted for attempting to fill the vacuum left by Charles, for the king's political and religious opponents, this was yet another example of his failure of duty. Now, I'm not quite sure I agree with the argument that Charles lost his head because, as Ronald Holmes argued, he overreached his political authority by obstructing the witch trials. That's far too deterministic, and degrades his opponents to simply zealous Puritans who tore three kingdoms to pieces because they weren't allowed to execute witches. But there's certainly a case to be made that belief in witchcraft was important in both explaining and describing the breakdown between king and parliament. We've already seen how the contrasting desires for witch hunts caused issues, but it is also worth considering the rhetoric that filled the press and the public spaces of England in the run-up to and during the war. In 1636, one writer declared that, quote, 
popish prelates had enchanted divers kings and others with their sorceries and conjurations to cause them to give up their royal power and prerogatives, end quote. While another, in 1637, described the enforcers of Laudian reforms as, quote, wizards of state that bewitch men with presence, end quote. The Book of Common Prayer, a central Anglican work, was, quote, nothing but a piece of conjuration, end quote, according to Puritan Nathaniel Angelo, and, quote, the bishops were popish rogues who deserved nothing but hanging, that the king was a papist in his heart, and the queen was a whore, and her children were Germain's bastards. As an aside, the Germain, or German, referred to is probably Thomas German, a royalist politician and officer who would later die in the Civil War at the age of 72. The Book of Common Prayer faced further attack from Henry Burton, who preached in the summer of 1641 that it was a, quote, abominable idol that was framed and composed by the devil and practiced and maintained by the devil's imps and instruments, end quote. One dissident, William Harvey, not, I should point out, the same William Harvey who was the physician of Charles, publicly sceptical of witchcraft, and the discoverer, if that is the right word, of the cardiovascular system of the human body. Anyway, this other William Harvey took his Book of Common Prayer and threw it in a pond overnight before burning what remained the next day. I should hardly have to point out the parallels between this book's ordeal by water and subsequent burning and the topic of this podcast. Once the conflict between king and parliament drew blood, witchcraft was invoked even more, and by both sides. The passage from Samuel was used copiously by both royalists and parliamentarians. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. It's a very helpful passage. The former statement was a powerful attack on the rebellious parliamentarians, while the latter justified Parliament's resistance to their ungodly king. Witchcraft also became a popular excuse to explain why there were people on the opposite side, whichever side that may be. The answer was simple. They were bewitched by the leaders of the opposing faction. For the Royalists, Parliament had repeatedly withheld the king's edicts and words from the general public out of fear that the godly nature of his words would free them from the puritanic spell. From the perspective of the parliamentarians, the king himself had been bewitched. The excerpt from the sermon of Edmund Staunton at the beginning of today's episode is a good illustrator. Gone was the unwillingness to criticise the king directly, opting instead to target his advisers. The king himself was now compared to Pharaoh from the story of Exodus. Not exactly a flattering comparison, but one that still allowed for Charles to not face sole blame. The rhetoric became more and more severe as the Civil War continued and Charles's recalcitrance became more known, to the point that, eventually, he would lose his head. Before we leave off today, we have reached another milestone. As of recording, I have been producing the History of Witchcraft podcast in its current form for a year and two days. This show has come an enormous way. After all, last episode, we celebrated 100,000 downloads. It's been difficult, 
time-consuming and sometimes incredibly stressful to try and keep this hobby of mine going. Clearly, considering this is episode 31 and not 51, I haven't managed to keep my weekly schedule for the entire year, but still. Knowing that there are people listening every week, and that I couldn't fit them all into my university's largest lecture theatre, is both a source of pride and incredibly humbling. So thank you, all of you, whether this is your first episode, or if you've been listening for months, or if you've binged the whole lot in a week, thank you. If you find the time, I would greatly appreciate it if you could write a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast directory you use. Spread the word, tell a friend, or twelve. Thank you to Hammer of the Witches, Executor Today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, and the Inquisitors Trish G, Elaine D, and to all of my demonologists and theologians for supporting the show through Patreon. You can join their ranks by visiting the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash history of witchcraft. The show also has a Facebook page, a web page, and a Twitter, if you'd like to be kept up to date with the show. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.